I got to go to the San Antonio Spurs Atlanta Hawks basketball game. Now, a lot of people in this area, I know Tom is a huge San Antonio Spurs fan. I go to that game because I'm one of six people in Texas who are Atlanta Hawk fans. Um, you don't see those, those people very often. In fact, you don't see very many of them in Atlanta. There's not, uh, there's not a lot of them. And uh, so the Hawks play the Spurs one time a year in San Antonio. And so a lot of times that game happens to be on a Wednesday night, and, you know, I'm busy, I can't go. But those years where I look at the schedule and it's on a different night, I start trying to plan how could I go to that game. And so the game was on a Saturday this year. So I guess it was, wasn't yesterday, it was Saturday before last. And I have a friend who has connections all over the place in the sports world's tickets. And so I sent him an email and I said, hey, could you get me good tickets where I could, where I could pay the, the, just the cover price? You know, the, I, I don't want to go to StubHub or one of these marketplaces and pay $400 for a $65 ticket because I need two of them because Amanda's going to go with me. And so he gets an email, sends an email back, and he says, hey, I got, I got the tickets. Where can I give them to you? Well, we were out of town, and I said, well, I can get you in when I come back in, or you can put them on my desk. He said, I put them on your desk. So I come back from out of town, and I've got a couple days vacation, and so I haven't even been into the office to pick up the tickets till that game. And I, I emailed him and said, how much do I owe you? And he said, don't worry about it. I got you covered. I was like, oh, man, that's really cool. So I go, and I grab them that Saturday morning before we leave, and I open them up. And I don't really know what this means when I'm looking at it, but it says box five. And I'm like, that sounds really good, but I don't know what that means. You know, is that a cardboard box somewhere because they're free? Or is this a box? See, so I get on to the AT&T Center website, and I'm looking, like, for the seats, and I can't find on their diagram a box anywhere. So I started Googling things. I told Amanda, I said, I think... I think I found this thing. I think this is like the high dollar, like corporate. I saw this one thing on there, like you can rent the box for or buy a seat for like $125,000 a year or something like that. And I'm like, I mean, could it be? You know, like, I don't know. And so I'm already, I've already gotten dressed for the morning and I've got my Atlanta Hawks t-shirt on and my Atlanta Hawks hat. And all of a sudden I look at Amanda and I go, if these seats are like sitting next to his San Antonio Spur friends, I can't wear this. I mean, as much as a fan, I mean, I don't know what that's like. So she was like, yeah, you better change. So we change into regular clothes. Go to the game. We've got this parking pass. We pull in. We're like right up by the entrance. We get in, and I'm asking people. I'm like, where do we go? They track us all the way through. We're like walking through these hallways where there's like six people. There's no one else in these hallways. And we walk up, and I'm like, is this where we're supposed to be? And the lady goes, you are. She hole punches the ticket, which that's never happened before, and then puts a wristband on her, on her arm and ushers us into this room where the chef has prepare, prepared garlic flank steak on the all-you-can-eat portion. They're going to bring you three different entrees that the chef has worked up for tonight's game. And I'm telling you, like a fish out of water. I don't want to ask, like, do I got to pay for this? Like, I, I think this stuff is free, I think, but... I don't want to be that guy. I'm looking at me and I go, I am so glad I'm not wearing a Hawks t-shirt right now. <laughs> and then, not part of the story, but then this guy comes in right behind us in an Atlanta Hawks tank top and a gold chain. I was like, well, I wouldn't have been that bad, you know. And so we get this free meal. I mean, it was incredible. And then I'm like, I don't, I don't even know how to get out of this room. And they tell us how to go. And we go and we are center court, 15 rows up. And it's like the box seats have like glass, like so 
you, if you don't want to talk to people, you don't have to, I guess. You know, there's just a handful of people. And it was this incredible experience. Now, for the 19th year in a row, Atlanta lost in San Antonio, and it wasn't even close. It was terrible. I mean, it was, it was bad. Um, they had people playing in the fourth quarter I'd never even heard the names of on, on either team. I was like, I, I, don't even, I think that guy was on our team last week. You know, that's how bad it was. And so we leave, and Amanda's like, I'm sorry, it was, you know, so bad. And I'm like, I know, I, I think I could have played tonight if they would have let me. <laughs> but she said, but you know what? What an incredible experience. And it was. She loved the experience. But for me, it was special to see the Hawks. It was special to have that experience. It was a, a great date night. But for me, it was really cool that there was somebody, and we're not even close friends, somebody that gave me this gift of a great value. I mean, it, it, that weighed heavy on me. I understood how valuable that was. And that he called in a favor, he did something so that I could have that experience. Now, if you've ever read Gary Chapman's book, The Five Love Languages, um, you understand his theory on how we understand love. If you haven't read it, that ought to be something you ask for for Christmas. Five Love Languages by Gary Chapman. It's, it's a life-transforming book. It was for me. And I don't know if it's proven, but what what he says through the the midst of the book is that every one of us understands love in one of five different languages or one of five different ways. One of them is words of affirmation. Now, some of these, you might, if you're sitting next to a spouse, you're sitting next to friends, you might go, oh, that's them. The words of affirmation people, you walk up to them and you go, man, you look really, you look really nice today. And they will wear that outfit every week for the next year. Because you just filled their love tank up. They feel good about themselves. And and you could bring them flowers if that's your spouse and she's a words of affirmation person, or maybe he is. Don't bring your husband flowers. That'd be weird. But you could do something like that. And they go, oh, great. Thank you. But they get blessed more. They feel more like when you go, hey, I love you, and you tell them why. When you go, you're the greatest husband there has ever been. Man, they just go, that's the, that's the way they experience love. Now, there's some people like me that you could come in and go, you are the greatest person on the planet. We love you because of this, 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 and this. And we're like, okay, cool. And, I mean, it, it's nice, but I don't walk away going, man, I just feel like I'm just not wired that way. He says there's some people that um, they have the, the love language of, of acts of service. Husbands. If your wife has the love language of acts of service, here's what she would tell you. Don't, don't bring me flowers. I mean, you can every now and then. What I would love for you to do is vacuum the house. I would love for you to put the dishes away. I would love for you to do something to, to serve me because that's how I, I receive love. Here's one way you know that if that's your wife, if she's the one that does all that stuff all the time and she, and, and she can't not do it, because that's how she's showing love to her family, because that's how she receives love. She understands love by service, so she tries to serve the family. And it might be husbands that do that. It might be, they might go, man, I love to cook, and that's their service. And so we, we give and receive love different ways. Some people are physical touch. Some people want hugs, and, and some people just, you know, a, a hand on the knee says everything. Some people, it's quality time. That's my wife's. So what my wife would love for me to do, the way she feels love, is if I can come home and sit down for a second, if we can, like, you know, duct tape the kids to a wall someplace where they can't come, and just, in 15 minutes of tell me about your day, 15 minutes, just sit with me, and let's share experience of the day. Now, 
It's not because I'm a guy that that sounds horrific because there's some guys that have quality time. It's because that's not my love language. And so I come in and I'm like, I don't really want to do that, but I understand that's the way she receives love. Then there's some people, and it's actually, when they look at numbers, it's a smaller group of people, which is probably good. But some people, their love language is receiving gifts. If your wife is that, she, that, that's the wife that you can do great things by bringing flowers home because she gets that gift and she goes, you, and that really says you love me. Well, that's the way I'm wired. And not everybody is. And so if you're wired that way, you see the world, you see Christmas sometimes differently. You know how some people will say, um, there's nothing greater on Christmas morning than gathering around the living room, the Christmas trees there, and the presents are there, and the kids come out. There's nothing greater than watching the joy on your kids' face as they open presents. That's what quality time people say, because they're enjoying the quality time. That's what words of affirmation people say, because their kids go, Mom, Dad, thanks. Receiving gifts, people go, hey, where's my stuff? Hey, kids, move out of the way. I think there's a present under there for me. That's the way we're wired. There's only a handful of us. There's not a lot of us, but that's the way we're wired. And so I'm kind of an authority on gifts, so much so that if you're not that way, some things you'll do in life, uh, that you, it won't even register. I might have told you a story. I don't remember, but it's worth telling again. I told our youth ministry team at our Christmas party. So somebody along the way, I don't remember what it was for. I think it was Boss's Day. Um, no, it was for my birthday. Uh, for my birthday, I got a couple of Amazon gift cards from people. So I, I went in, I redeemed them, put them into Amazon, and had, it was like $90 worth of stuff, and I was going to get some things that I needed. And so I go on, and I'm going to get a pair of headphones that I need, and they're like $6 headphones. I'm a frugal shopper. And I get on, I get them, and it says, do you want to spend your $6? headphones, do you want to use the $9.73 you have on your gift card? I'm like, wait, what? It was like $60 or something like that on the gift card. So I go back to like the, the orders to go, what did I buy? Because I don't even remember buying something. Um, and there were a pair of size nine girls chacos shoes. Rayleigh's birthday was coming up. And that's what the, the gift card had been spent on. So I was kidding with Amanda. I mean, it was going to go to something like that anyway, probably. But I came to the man, and I said, uh, I said, hey, you know those shoes I bought for my birthday? I don't think they're going to work because they're size nine, and they're for girls. And she goes, what are you talking about? And I said, you spend my, my birthday money on, and she's like, oh, I'm sorry. So not a big deal, but the story gets better because two weeks later is our, our wedding anniversary. So I've got a couple of wedding anniversary gifts for, and here's what she got me. She goes, hey, I don't have it wrapped up for, your, for our anniversary. I put that money that I took back on the Amazon gift card for you. Went, <laughs> That's funny. Said, Seriously? So she done. I was like, so really, like, you took money out of my wallet and then gave it back to me and said, happy anniversary. She's like, well, I don't, I don't really see it that way because she's not a receiving gifts person. You know, does that make sense? So, So I'm saying all of that to say to you this, I can speak as an authority about gifts and presents and things like that because God made me that way. And as an authority on gifts, let me tell you this, during this Christmas season, no one, not even somebody who receives gifts as a love language, wants to spend their Christmas at home alone with somebody mailing them all of their Christmas gifts. We don't want that. As much as we want gifts, as much as that makes us feel loved, 
We don't want it in a vacuum of people because we were created for relationships. Now, there was a study done in England two years ago. And so these statistics, I'm about to tell you, come from England, so you can extrapolate out and figure out what America would be like. It'd be bad. But they said that there are going to be over a half million elderly people in the UK that are going to spend Christmas all alone, primarily because they've been widowed and they have family that's moved too far away to make the trip back or to get them there for Christmas, and they're going to spend Christmas all alone. When that happens... From a health perspective, they said what that does to the body to you as a healthy person is the equivalent of smoking 15 cigarettes a day, being alone. It hastens dementia, high blood pressure, heart disease. Five million people in that study, five million people in the UK said that their primary relationship was their television. And over 600,000 said they leave their house less than one time a week. You can send them gifts. You can buy them a brand new car to leave the house in. You could send boxes and boxes and boxes of presents, but that's not at the end of the day what they need nor what they want. And I'm saying that as a person who understands love that way. Does that make sense? I mean, really, I'm not trying to sound prideful. I'm an expert in this area. I don't want all the gifts and nobody to share them with. No one does. And so as we, as we continue this Advent series, and Advent means arrival, as we're preparing to, for, for Jesus to come and to, or to um, reflect upon the day when he came and prepare for when he will come back, I'm not suggesting that you throw out all the gifts. But what I am suggesting is that we spend a little bit more time focusing on the people in our lives that we're giving the gifts to. And so I put it this way to help you remember it. This holiday, this Christmas, let your presents that you give away be presents. Let your presents be presents. Again, we don't have to say, you don't have to call grandma and say, don't send socks. We don't want to open them because now we feel guilty about it. We're not talking about being anti-gift, but more pro-relationship. And we're going to look at a passage of Scripture today that is not very Christmassy. So if you have your Bible, turn to John chapter 1. Next week, uh, when I'm in the, in the big service, if you'll come over at 11 o'clock, we're going to look at the passage of Scripture where uh, we learn that Jesus' name is Emmanuel, God with us. And it's a part of the Christmas story that you might read. John 1 is not a passage of Scripture that you're going to gather your family around the Christmas tree and read this year, but it does teach us about the coming of Jesus. So John chapter 1, <coughs> we're really going to focus in on verse 14, but I want us to start in verse 6, so we can get some of the context. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This is John the Baptist. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. And the light would be Jesus. Verse 9, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world Uh, I'm sorry, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And in verse 14, where we're going to stick this morning, says this, and the Word, capital W, and the Word became flesh 
and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. What a beautiful picture. Great imagery that the word, the capital W, God became flesh. He became blood and bone. He had nerves that went through his body and a brain and organs just like we do. Now, we understand that God, as we understand him through the Old Testament and outside of the experience of Jesus, God incarnate, we understand God to be spirit. God doesn't have a beard. He's not on a throne with a staff for people he loves and a lightning bolt for the people he doesn't. He's, he's, the, he's a spirit. But the spirit became flesh, became just like us. Now, here's the, here's the interesting thing. I don't know how I would have done it if I was God and really thought about that. But he didn't have to do it that way. He didn't have to reveal himself that way. He could have continued revealing himself the way he did through the Old Testament, through prophets, through an occasional experience that was shrouded in mystery, a mountaintop experience where a cloud descended, a cloud that led people by day, fire by night, handwriting on a wall in Daniel. God could have done all kinds of different things, but he chose for some reason to become like us, to experience what you and I have experienced and to walk on the earth on ground that he created and to talk and interact with his creation. But here's the also thing that kind of blows my mind. He could have just showed up, right? Boom, skies open, kind of what I picture the second coming of it. Skies open, Jesus appears, and it's like, hey, guys, here it is. Bang, and here, uh, here's my revelation. Here's what I want you to know. <coughs> but he didn't. Scripture says in verse 14, he says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us lived among us. The Greek word there is literally tabernacled among us. The tabernacle was the Old Testament place of worship that traveled with the people as they moved from Egypt to the promised land. And they'd take it down and set it up that, that the word God became flesh and he tabernacled, he journeyed with us. Now, I don't know why. And I'd love to give you some great theological insight. We could probably kick that around. You might in your small group. I don't know. I don't not sure that's a question, but that'd be a good one. Why did God do that? I don't know why, but he did. He chose to live with us. He chose to walk with us. And, and when we read the story of Scripture, we get the birth of Jesus. And you're going to, like I said, we're going to gather around Christmas trees and read that to our, to our families this year. We get the birth of Jesus, baby Jesus. We get this one snapshot of when Jesus is, is a, a young teenager, late preteener, and he goes to the temple and he gets left behind. And, and, and for, he's, he's there at the temple several days speaking to the <coughs> teachers and the priests. We get that story. But then the story picks back up with Jesus beginning his ministry three or so years before the cross. We're left without all of the middle tabernacling. That's not really a word. I just coined that. It's tabernacle as a verb, tabernacling. He was dwelling with us. We don't have a lot of that. But here's what we do know. Even though there's not stories about that, we know several things about Jesus and about his relationships. One, we know that he had a relationship with his mother. And we know that because when Jesus is on the cross, and we're fast forward to Easter, at the end, and he's about to die, Mary's there, and the apostle John is there, one of his disciples, and Jesus makes it very clear to John, and one of the last things that he says is, John... You take care of my mother. 
And all the, as Jesus is dying for the sins of the world, there's got to be a thousand things running through his mind. But one of those things, one of the final seven things that we have recorded from the cross is, John, take care of my mother. Somewhere along the way, there is this relationship of family. We know Jesus had friends. Not just because he hung out with the disciples and because people hung with him and the stories of Mary and Martha and Lazarus and those. We know that at the end, when Peter denies Jesus, do you remember this story? Peter denies Jesus three times after Jesus predicted it and Peter said, there's no way I'd do it. I would never turn my back on you. And Jesus says, before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. Peter says, nope. Peter denies him and on the third time, a rooster crows and Peter realizes I've done it <coughs> and is shamed. And Jesus dies. He's resurrected, and one of the first stories we get of the resurrected Jesus is him going and finding Peter and having this conversation that restores the relationship. Jesus was a family guy. Jesus had great friend relationships, and here's how important we also know. Again, it doesn't tell us explicitly. We just see it, but how important relationships were to Jesus. Jesus was a busy guy. I mean, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, those stories, we're guessing, take about three years. And that's not even all that happened. That's just what's recorded. But as Jesus is going along the way with ministry and tasks to be done, there are several places in the Scripture where he stops because someone needed his presence at that moment. Jesus could have, as he's going along the way, I've got to get over here because I've got this ministry engagement over here, and here's somebody that, that has a need. Jesus could have, as he went, just like, you know, snapped, and the person been healed. You know, he didn't have to snap. He could have winked, thought it, done whatever. Everybody in the room, he could. But we see in the Scripture, oftentimes, as Jesus is going, he stops and he turns, and instead of just making another task happen, he practices presence, even for a moment, and blesses somebody that had no idea who he was. And so I want to suggest to you that this passage of Scripture, John chapter 1, verse 14, it says, And the Word became flesh, and it dwelt among us, that there, there's a great lesson in this idea of Jesus dwelling with people. Because we read stories, even though they're not explicitly taught in this way, to find out that Jesus cared about people. But let me tell you this. Take it another level. We were at the Christmas stroll yesterday. And uh, as we're walking around the Christmas stroll, uh, one of the teachers at the school we go to that Amanda is friends with, her two daughters were there, and they were working one of the booths in Whoville. And their daughters, one's in third grade, she's in Rayleigh's class, or is friends with her, and the other one's in fourth grade. And so these two girls are there with the mom, and they're volunteering for like four or five hours at Whoville. And so as we got out of a line, Amanda went over, and she said, can, you know, can we take the girls, and can they go with us, and we'll go, so they don't have to just sit here and wait. And the mom was like, are you serious? That would be fantastic. So we take these two little girls of ours, and we head over to the Bethlehem area, which the Bethlehem area is fantastic if you didn't go to Bible college. Um, if you go to Bible college, you just walk in and go, no, that's not, no, uh, no, mm -mm. there's no such thing as the tribe of Joseph, but okay, you know. And so we're going through with them. Well, they go through this one little section, and they get what in the Old Testament they called phylacteries. A phylactery was an armband you wore on your wrist or you wore on your forehead, and inside of it was the Shema, Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And so I, I'm off talking to a couple of our guys that, that work in the Gideons area and, and visiting with them while the girls are getting these phylacteries. And so they walk up, and I'm like, what'd y'all get there? And they go, a black bracelet. And it dawned on me, I was like, oh, did they say what that was? 
I said, they say anything like, I said, that's a, I, think, I think what that is is a phylactery. And they're like, yeah, they said that word. And I said, now, is there something inside of it? And this little girl who I just met for the first day, Amanda knows her, but I haven't, I haven't met her before. She's like, I, I don't think so. And I'm feeling like, yeah, I think there's something. And she pulls it out, and there's a piece of paper. And I said, you know, I bet you it's Deuteronomy chapter 6. And she opens it up and unfolds it, and it's Deuteronomy chapter 6. And I was like, pretty much blew your mind, didn't I? That was awesome, right? <laughs> and so I started explaining to him what it meant, that it was, it was the Shema, the hero is where the Lord your God is one. It was on, their, on the door frames of their houses. They wore it to remember that God is one. So we go fast forward in Jesus' ministry, and they come to Jesus. Some of the, the uh, teachers and a scribe, an expert in the law, comes and says to Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? Of all of the rules, we talked about this a few weeks ago, of all of the laws, what is the greatest? Now, they're trying to trick Jesus, thinking Ten Commandments, but Jesus answers the one that they should have went, oh, yeah, that was a dumb question. That's, that's, that's right, because we've been learning this as a kid. And Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. You're only six. But Jesus doesn't stop there. That was the answer that everyone knew. That was the agreed-upon answer. That was the one they'd worn on their wrists and their foreheads and seen on their doors every day of their lives. That's what they had taught their children as they had walked to and from places and went to bed and got up in the morning as Scripture had taught. Jesus said, but the second, he didn't ask him about this, but the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. The, the understood answer was love God. David talked about that last week, worship fully. And Jesus says, now that is the greatest commandment, but let me add to it, loving people, because people matter. And so this holiday season, as we're going through all of the stores and our online shopping, and we're thinking about that perfect gift, let me encourage you to consider making your, some of your presence your presence that you spend this time thinking about people because Jesus modeled, for that, modeled that for us when the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So how do we do that? I'm going to give you just a couple of thoughts and then I'll let you talk. First one is this. I'm going to encourage you to love your family and friends in the way that they were meant to be loved. We talked about love languages earlier. If your kids, and again, I'm not saying take all your gifts back and send them back because you feel guilty. That is not what we're talking about, especially if you have kids whose love language is receiving gifts. That would be the worst thing you can do. But if you've got a kid whose love language is words of affirmation, amongst the gifts that you give them, how about considering pulling them aside sometime during this Christmas holiday and taking about five minutes to look them in the eye, eye to eye, and tell them all of the great things you see about them? That makes you uncomfortable because you go, uh, you know, we don't, we don't have that kind of relationship. For it. How about writing it? Write it out and begin developing that relationship. If your spouse is quality time like my wife's is, you know, the challenge is in the midst of all of the craziness to find some time just to pull aside and be together. The gifts will be great, but at the end of the day, that's what will matter. Husbands, wives, if your spouse is acts of service, one of the great things you could do is maybe say, hey, this year I'm taking whatever, cleaning the bathrooms, what you hate, off of your agenda. And then you'll find out, we have to do that every week, you know, or whatever, you know. That might, and, and what you may discover come January, February, March, all of the other gifts that you bought 
have been put on a shelf, they've been put in a drawer, they've been put away, but that's the gift that's mattered the most because you're loving that person the way they're meant to be. So what if, you're, what if your child or your spouse or a friend is receiving gifts? Well, that seems easy. You can buy them something. That's not necessarily practicing presence. That's not your presence being presence. I mean, you could just go, hey, here's an iTunes gift card and walk away. Now, they'll love that. But you practice presence this way. After you give them the iTunes gift card, a couple days later, you follow up and you go, hey, what'd you buy? What album did you get? I'm using this as an example because this could be worst case scenario for you as a parent. And they go, I bought Justin Bieber. And you go, whoo, man, I'm glad I don't have to listen to that. But the parent whose presence is presence is going to sit down and go, hey, can we listen to that together? Load that up. Let's put it in the car. I want to hear it. I'm probably not going to like it, but I want to give it a shot. it's, It's sharing that gift with them, watching them do it, figuring out how they use it, whatever it is. It might be if you want to buy them clothes, you might buy them a gift card and say, I want to go with you and be present with you while you shop. And again, you know, for some of us, that's hard. I mean, I, I can think of about 20 million things I'd rather do than shop with my nine-year-old. She's the most indecisive child I've ever met in my life, you know? It's, it's three days. To, I mean, I, when we went to Disney World, she had $50 of spending money. She didn't spend a dime of it until we were two hours from leaving. And she asked me still, I like this thing, but can I go to another store and come back? I said, no, baby, we've had six days of checking and going back. It's now or never. I mean, that, that's, that's, but that's practicing presence. How, how do the people you love understand love and be present with them in that? Here's the second thing, last application. Look for those people that others are going to miss during the season. As a family, you can do it. Who are the people? You, you don't have to fly to England. That was the only analogy I gave you earlier. But there's people in America that are going to be alone. During this season, can you give a gift of presence to someone who needs it. There's a guy named Joshua Bell. Joshua Bell went into the Washington, D.C. metro, a pair of jeans, long sleeve shirt, Washington Nationals cap, and a violin case. And he went in like people tend to do, leaned up against the wall, took his hat off, laid it down, pulled out a couple dollars and some change to kind of seed the, the giving into his hat. And he pulled out his violin and he started playing in the metro. Played for 45 minutes. They videoed it, and they said there was roughly 27 people out of thousands that stopped. And at the end of the day, he had made, or at the end of the 45 minutes, he'd made $32. It was an experiment that the Washington Post commissioned. Three days earlier, Joshua Hebel had sold out the Boston Symphony with a low ticket price of $100 per ticket. He's a world-renowned violinist. The violin that he pulled out in that subway station that played was a $3 million Stradivarius violin. And the experiment was, in this context, change the way we see beauty. If we walk into an art exhibit expecting to see beauty, do we go, that's beautiful? When we pay $100 for the cheap seats at a symphony, we go, that's beautiful. But if it's in the crowded subway, is it as beautiful to us as it was if we paid for it? That was the experiment. 
But what I took away from it was this. One of the greatest violinists on a $3 million violin made $32 because he was in a place that nobody expected. And this Christmas, as we think about the Word becoming flesh and dwelling among us, we're going to read stories about a God who showed up as a baby in a little small town called Bethlehem in the back lot of a feed barn. And the first people outside of his mother and father and aunt and uncle they were told of the event were some of the loneliest people on the planet, shepherds, hanging out with a bunch of sheep. And the angels appear and say, the Messiah has come. Tells us something about God, doesn't it? Tells us something about how he sees people. And so the other application we can take to go and do this scripture, to take this word became flesh and dwelt among us, one of the things that we can do as a family is to find somebody that's a shepherd in the wilderness, that's a guy sitting on a street corner playing his violin. Now, if you find the, got the $3 million violin, kudos to you, you did well. Finding the person that nobody else is looking for and spending some time with them, giving them some of your presence. Now, again, I've said it a couple times, we're not talking about commercialism. Surely Christmas is commercialized. I mean, no, nobody doubts that. Not saying get rid of all gifts and let's go have a Quaker-type Christmas. But in the midst of Christmas is the way we understand it. Could our presence be presence in someone's life? And here's the truth. And you know this. We just tend to forget about it. Years down the road, all of those items that we get for Christmas are going to be rusty and dusty well before we will be but you'll have some memories and some relationships that make this life that Jesus created us have relationally deeper, better, and more enjoyable. Could you make your presence your presence? Let me pray for us.